last week as we moved into verse 15, what, what, we, what we saw was that the church should be made up of people who are ruled by the peace of Christ. Right? You all remember that? No? Okay. Well, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And what I did was I broke this down into three easy-to-digest pieces. Um, <clears throat> first was concerning the peace of Christ. This peace is not produced by you, but by Jesus. So you have to do, uh, if it's not yours, but it's his, but it can be yours if you get it from him, what you have to do is the first couple of vers verses in Colossians 3, which says, if then you've been raised with Christ, keep on seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are below or on earth. So that was first. It's his peace. So where are you going to get it? Second was peace is not a servant. It is to rule in our hearts. So um, I think we tend to think we can apply peace or produce it on demand or call it like our parents when we're in trouble. Peace is not a product available for us to consume when we think we need it. Peace is supposed to be the governor of the house, not the butler or the maid. And so if we're going to let peace rule in our hearts, that's going to look a little bit different than running out and grabbing it whenever we notice that we're in some kind of a peace deficit, right? Third is that peace is not in our circumstances. Where is peace? Where is it supposed to rule? Yep. So when you look around at the chaos that is your life on the worst day, and don't see a lot of peace there, please don't be shocked. It's to rule in our hearts in many, in many circumstances in spite of how bad they are, right? Um, which is the beautiful part about it flowing from Christ to us is it doesn't have to go through our circumstances to get to us. It just has to go through the Holy Spirit. It has to go through our comprehension and apprehension and application of his word. It's not as though if you can't find peace in the gas chamber in the moments before you die, uh, there is none. You have the promise of eternal life that far supersedes the threat of impending death. Okay. I think the instinct of preachers... <clears throat> I mean, that might just be me projecting, right? But I, I really, I don't find it my instinct. It is something that I've heard other, other preachers do. The instinct of preachers, when we come to the subject of Christian unity and love, in order to strengthen the resolve of the people in their congregation, like I want, so I'm preacher so and so, and I wanna I wanna really encourage you in this work of love and in this uh, work of cultivating unity in and among the congregation. There's this temptation <clears throat> to address the elephant in the room, so to speak. So as I'm preaching a text like this, the temptation is to point out that it's hard to be unified and loving because people are nasty and mean. Have you ever heard a guy that's preaching? Then he'll run from what this text says and go to all the exceptions. Reject a factious man after one or two reproofs and... 
Um, cite some horrific example of something going on in a church as a means to say, but there can't always be unity. Which I don't don't understand because that's not what the text does. So what you end up with, if I do that, and and granted, that's true, right? There can't always be. Historically, there's been divisions in churches. Okay, but if I do that, what we end up with is this kind of this sad, fatalistic, like, yeah, people are terrible, but we really have to be nice anyway approach to, to church life and, and unity. So what I pointed out last week was I wasn't like I wasn't very loud about it, but I'm going to be really loud about it this week. Um, the reason that Paul indicates for why unity does not come in the midst of the congregation. The reason, I think what he's suggesting is the main uh, prohibitor of unity in the church is not that people, other people are mean and nasty or other people are sinful. It's that you're not letting peace rule in your own heart. I feel like that's, that's what he's hinting at. So if you consider the following, so beginning back at verse five, <clears throat> look at that. In Colossians 3, verse 5, I can't, well, whatever. You're probably looking. You might not be. I don't know. Let me. Many of you are. Good. Uh, Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. You all remember this? You can't tame the lion? All right. Uh, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked, or sorry, in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So... Real simple summary statement. Put those things to death. Amen? Don't be like this. Okay? From, from then, from 11 through 17, you see a call to unity through the adopting of various new attitudes and actions. So I think you do have to start with five. Put these things off. Don't do this stuff anymore. This is not conduct befitting of a Christian. When you get to 11, it's, but put this on. Do this. This is. It's this... Um, well, let me not get ahead of myself. (laughs) Put these things on 11, almost like it doesn't belong. 11 says also don't segregate yourselves based on external factors and, and outward appearance, right? So I promise I don't think we're doing that. I really don't. There's just not a lot of white people around us. They're just, sorry, black people. I was having a stroke, evidently. There's just not a lot of black people around. I think we probably represent the community fairly accurately at this point. Um, If we were planted in downtown Omaha, like 10th and Lake, I would expect us to look a lot different. Um, But it, it, I do want to make sure that we're careful to observe 11 and make sure that we are making space in the midst of this congregation for people that maybe aren't like us. Okay, so so let let me just run through the flow again so we don't lose it. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. Take this stuff off. Don't do this. 
10 and 11, or sorry, and 10. And then 11 is don't segregate yourself, yourselves, especially in the context of one church by external factors. And then in 12 through 14, you've got this call for adorning yourself with what, what I would call the, the, like the graces of Christ. So uh, because... On one hand, you can't expect to have perfect unity if people are engaged in unrestrained evil, right? If, some pe- if this half of the room is engaged in unrestrained evil and this half isn't, how much unity is there going to be between those two halves? Well, none. We're after different things. On the other hand, uh, you can't expect to have unity if people are intolerant. So if this half of the room is engaged in what we would call remaining corruption, like I'm not perfect yet, and this half of the room thinks they are, you're not going to have unity. Like if you think you're perfect and you're like, well, I'm trying, but I'm just not, there's not going to be unity because this is unrealistic. Okay? Uh, so you have to put an end to immorality uh, anger, wrath, malice, slanderous talk, all that stuff. You have to put on compassion, kindness, charity, bear with one another, forgive one another. And then third, you got to stop segregating yourselves based on external factors. But then above all these things, we put on love uh, and then engage in loving actions towards one another. So assuming we're doing all of that, we'll have a church filled with love and unity. And then look at the end of verse 14. What does love do? Yeah, it binds everything together in perfect harmony. So here, here's where, again, <clears throat> I said a few minutes ago that the temptation is to go find a passage that addresses the exceptions and you get a sermon about troublemakers in the church and how they need to be dealt with. That's not what Paul does. What Paul does is in verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. That's unity again, right? Verse 14, perfect harmony. Verse 15, you're called in one body, so let the peace of Christ rule and be thankful. What that suggests to me, and you're free to disagree with me if if you don't like the emphasis that I'm making, but what that suggests to me is that the first obstacle to unity within the context of the body of Christ locally is not that some people aren't doing all the things that he just suggested. The lack of unity in a congregation, I'm not saying that's not a cause, I'm saying I don't believe it's the first cause. So the lack of unity in a congregation is is not primarily caused by, or uh, it's not only caused by, or always caused by folks at church who are sinning in the most obvious ways. The lack of unity is, is, is sometimes caused by that. But we, don't we, when there's disunity, don't we start looking for, well, what, all right, who's the sinner? What's their sin? We're like Job's friends. Well, you must have done something. Because we're not, like there's disunity, and I know it's not me. What, what is he suggesting? The flow of these things seems important to me. What if the first obstacle to unity in the church is the lack of peace in your own heart? What if that's all it took? Was you, in, in the course of your day-to-day life, you are not living in a way that lets peace rule in your own heart? 
What if that's all it took for there to be disunity in the church? And uh, the reason we lack peace in our own hearts is because we're completely unintentional about our peace. What if that's true? And so last week I tried to like shine a little light on that by looking at what we pursue. What fills up your eyes and ears? What fills up your mind? What drives your emotions? What consumes your time and energy? And the burning question, <clears throat> excuse me, when we shook the tree and got all of the Netflix and Snapchat and Fox News and CNN and Facebook and YouTube and Rumble and Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it, all the movies, games, uh, TV, sports, all the hours at work, school, cleaning, cooking, doing uh, laundry and housework and homework. Once we shook all those leaves out of the tree and then, and then just looked at what was left when all those things were gone, the question becomes, is there anything left in the tree? Or did we just cover all of it? Is there left a leaf in that tree that says, letting peace rule in my heart? And I'm not, I'm not oh man, I, I don't like it when people do this. So I'm not pursuit shaming you. I promise I'm not. Like, we have to work. We have to clean the house. In fact, I wish someone would clean this one. Right? We, like, things have to get done. They're not just going to magically happen. We should spend some time entertaining ourselves. We, we should, like, cook and clean. But look at Luke 10. Turn to Luke chapter 10 in your Bible. Look at verse 38. Uh, Luke 10, 38 says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. And the Lord answered her, <clears throat> Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. And look, it doesn't say only one thing is necessary. And he doesn't say, shame on you for being concerned about anything else. That's not <laughs> what Jesus is communicating. He's like, you got your mind on all this stuff. But you forgot one thing. Mary's chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So look right at me. I mean, I, unless you're here, then you can do whatever you want. <laughs> if you are consumed by your anxious thoughts and, 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 and riddled with uh, anxiety over the course of your life and whatever's going on in it. I mean, I might be right, okay? So just listen to me, just in case I am. 
If that's you and you're struggling consistently to have peace rule in your heart, listen to me. One thing is necessary that you're missing. There's a piece that you're missing, and here's what it is. What's the, one, what's the good portion that you've neglected? What was Mary doing? Look at verse 39. We're still in Luke. Look at verse 39. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. You want to know why peace is hard to come by? Let me illustrate it with the church first, and then we'll look at it on a personal level. If you fill a church, uh, I don't know how you would do this, but if you fill a church with people who are primarily consumed with like cultural issues, social justice or whatever, or you fill a church with people who are primarily preoccupied with um, politics or social justice or philosophy or the war in Ukraine or the CDC or whatever, or you fill a church with people who are obsessed with doctrine and theology and like international missions or building new buildings and, and having new campuses. Or you fill a church with people who, who uh, are doing primarily anything other than sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning of him. You're going to have disunity and fighting. So let's look at it at the micro level. If you fill your own heart with climbing the corporate ladder, you fill your own heart with finding a boyfriend or impressing a girl, or, I mean, especially if you're married, right? Um, <laughs> you fill your own heart with just, I'm just filled with finding a college or you fill your own heart with getting more likes on your socials, or you fill your own heart with redecorating the house every time the seasons are about to change, or you fill your own heart with whatever. And, and, you, and you don't often stop and ask Jesus to teach you. You will find that you don't have peace ruling in your heart. So as the individual goes, kind of... Like we see it better if we look at the church because everybody has been in a church where there's problems before. So we know what that looks like. And what I'm telling you is if you look at your own heart, mind, relationship with Jesus, relationship with other people, ecosystem, it functions the same way. If you're preoccupied with anything to the point where you have excluded sitting at the feet of Jesus, you're not going to have peace. You just won't. And it's surprising how close uh, you can get to the mark and still miss it, right? Because I've met people that just have tremendous doctrinal understanding, remarkable uh, like theological literacy, and they can quote scripture, and they are miserable, miserly, hurtful, like shriveled up and downright mean. But they've got all this Bible knowledge. So I guess it's important that I say that's not even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. So Paul doesn't go, Here, <laughs> here's how to deal with nasty people at church. He doesn't do that. He, he says, let's... Let peace rule in your hearts because that's where the real work needs to happen. Now, I want this church, this one, 
this, and I don't even control this one, right? All I do is talk for an hour. What I want for this church is for it to be filled with peace and unity. Oh, two of us uh, want that. Great. <laughs> I want this church to be filled with peace and unity, whether there's a hundred of us or a thousand of us. The only way we can scale peace and unity is if people who take the business of, of tending their own hearts seriously help everybody else take the business of tending their own hearts seriously. And to prove him right, he goes right on in verse 16, but we'll start in 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. We're back in Colossians 3. <coughs> Pardon me. To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So to begin 16, we've already kind of addressed the whole need to sit at Jesus' feet and learn from him. Since we can't literally do that, We can't literally sit at Jesus' feet because he's not literally physically here, right? Okay? The admonition, I think, is to make certain that we're taking time to read our Bibles. But in case we're too slow to figure that out, Paul says, let the word of Christ richly or abundantly dwell in you. And it... <laughs> I'm not the preacher who will stand up here and tell you how often, how long, and what time of day you should read your Bible. I'll just tell you that you should read it. I don't care about all that, well, if you don't do it in the morning, you're set yourself up for failure all day. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe if you do it the evening before, you'll wake up with the, the right frame of mind, the right thoughts. Well, you should do it both. Okay, whatever. I'm just saying you should be doing it. It's with some regularity, you should be reading your Bible. If you don't, here's what I'll say. Now this is, okay, a little dramatic, Ellie Mae. If you don't do this, I hope you are miserable. I hope you are miserable. I hope you can't sleep. I hope you get depressed. I hope you lose your appetite. Oh, I, get a whole eating disorder. <laughs> I hope you struggle at work. I hope you struggle at school. I hope your life falls apart. Because if you're a Christian and you don't find yourself drawn to the word of God, you will find yourself driven to the word of God. Hebrews 12.8 says, If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So Christians, sometimes, because we're still sinners, we neglect the means of grace, right? Scripture fellowship, prayer being the primary, like, <clears throat> nobody can argue about these being means of grace. They're the means by which we get and experience 
and apply the grace of God to our lives. I open my Bible, I read it, I get on my knees and I pray. I interact with the other people of God. These are obvious ways that God goes, here's some grace. If you neglect those, usually what happens is things will start to kind of go south in your life and things will start to hurt. And then once you're like, ow, you go running back to God. And normally the way that you do that is by attending those means of grace. So if you've been skipping church because it's more important to go camping every weekend and your life starts to hurt, you might be like, "Mm, maybe I should repent and start making sure that I'm at church. If you've been skipping your Bible reading because it's more fun to scroll TikTok and your life starts to hurt, You might think, "Mm, maybe I should scroll this TikTok and make time to read my Bible. If you haven't prayed because you'd rather gossip and slander and talk on the phone or like whatever, and then your life starts to hurt, you might be like, ooh, maybe I should spend some time praying to God and pouring my heart out to him and letting him know what's going on with me. And this happens because God will not allow his people, his children to walk in wickedness, right? Neither will he allow us to walk in loneliness and isolation because we're his So when we start doing those things, he goes, ah, we get corrected. We get disciplined. If you aren't drawn and you aren't driven, you can just kind of like coast through life and never study Jesus' book, then your condition is worse than someone who can't sleep, can't eat, can't get enthusiastic about anything. If you aren't drawn or driven to the word of God and your life doesn't hurt, you're just deceived. You aren't a Christian. You need to meet Jesus. You never have. Oh, but I had this experience. Well, good. It's meaningless. It's meaningless. If that experience, whatever one you had that caused you to believe that you're a Christian, is not uh, reflected in an ongoing production of gratitude-filled acts of holiness, that experience that you had whenever you had it is meaningless. Being a Christian is not a one-time event where you get fire insurance against hell. Being a Christian is a lifetime relationship between you and the one who made you. So, we come to faith in Jesus <clears throat> we, we come into a relationship with the one who created us and he has said that he will speak to us through his book. So if you're not a Christian, I want you to be one. I want you to meet Jesus because you never have. You've, I don't know what you have, but it's not what those of us who are in relationship with God have. And this, this isn't like, this is not me. This is not me berating you. I know that won't work. I can't, like, come up here. I take out a lighter and hold it under your hand and go, that's sure hot, isn't it? Imagine that all over your whole body. Well, that's going to be you if you go to hell. That's useless. That's not the gospel. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my word. You'll obey my commandments. Jesus said that. And you all know, I'm like, law? What law, right? I'm a total antinomian reprobate. But here's what he said. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Not perfectly, but really, you just will. And if you don't, and you don't have a heartfelt desire to, then you're not his. So I can't scare you into being God's child. All I can do is tell you, all those who come to him, he will in no way cast out. 
And you need to get saved so that these desires will be planted into you. So when we come to faith in Jesus, we come into a relationship with the one who created us. And he has said, I will speak to you through my word. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active. Stop me if you've heard this. <clears throat> Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Isaiah 40, verse 8, God says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. <clears throat> Jesus himself is identified as the Logos, the Word made flesh. In John 1.14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So, listen, <clears throat> it's easy to tune out when you're as boring as I am. Don't tune out. Do the work. Stay with me, because this is life-changing. Uh, Jesus is the fullness of God in bodily form, right? So all the divinity of God in the form of a man. Before that, he was all the divinity of God expressed in words. The Lord spoke and he said, let there be light and there was light. And he separated the day from the night and he created everything. And all that was created was created through Christ. He was the word of God before he took on flesh. The word functions. It operates in us to accomplish God's good pleasure through us and with us and for us. Isaiah 55, 11, <clears throat> God says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me, but it shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I think I've missed a word there. It will not return to me empty or void or without accomplishing all that God intends. So the word of God goes out. And, and for our purposes, the word of God is what? Is who? Yeah, so Jesus goes out and he don't come back until he accomplishes everything that he intends to accomplish. Now, He's not coming back to us. He's gone back to the Father. He's seated at the right hand of God, enthroned in glory, interceding for us, right? Okay, so while we're waiting for Jesus to actually come in bodily form for his final advent, what we have is this, the word of God in written form in which all the character of God necessary for humanity to understand and comprehend, the harder they stare at something, the more I know they're not listening. You get that dead stare. Everything we need to understand and comprehend God is right here. He didn't have to give us this. He could have said, grope around until you find me. And he would have been perfectly in his right as creator to do that. Instead, he graciously gave us his word. And guess what it does? It leads people to Jesus. That's what it does. All right, so 
all that, all that we claim as Christians, we claim by faith. Amen? And that faith needs to be helped, increased, and purified. Amen? It's not, my faith isn't perfect. Your faith isn't perfect either. It's got to be helped along. So Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Not the word of James or Jordan Peterson or Rush Limbaugh. God rest his soul. So what? So what? So you can't claim to be a Christian and not be interested in Jesus' word. And if all that I accomplish by saying that is that you get scared enough to pick it up and read it, I'll take it. I haven't done you any harm. But really what needs to happen is you need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So for the rest of us, Paul instructs us to let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, literally abundantly dwell in you. How's that going to happen? How's it going to richly, abundantly dwell in us? Well, it will happen by all of us picking it up and reading it to start. Amen? But he adds these instructions, which are very helpful. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we don't just read it. We teach one another and caution one another gently with his word. <clears throat> gently. Gently. Not, not like homeschool parents, gently, <laughs> lovingly, with an eye toward encouraging one another to walk in obedience, right? We don't just read it and teach one another gently and warn one another. We sing it. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs rooted in his word, too. I happen to believe, I've got a whole thing on this, and I'm going to try really hard not to derail this sermon and keep us all here till noon. But I really believe music matters. Every other preacher that's jealous because they can't do what I do tells me, you shouldn't be playing and then preaching. You should just do one or the other. Where's that written? Well, brother, it's just a better part of wisdom. Not all of them, but I've been told this. Right? But I think music really matters. I think it, I don't think it, I know it reaches parts of the person that words alone cannot or will not. So it's also something that in church, the congregation part participates in. So this is not just going to a Taylor Swift concert, which would be amazing, I agree right? <laughs> kind of. I'm not a 13, 14 year old girl, but I, I'm sure she's a great entertainer. Anyway, you go to that and it's kind of an experience too, because every, there's lights and lasers and fog and everything. Everything's programmed to cause you to have like a, <gasps> a response, but you're not, you're not involved the way you are when you come to church and worship, because what we're doing, what, what's happening up here with the band is we are trying to assist you in the worship of God. It's not a performance. This is not about, look how great we are. It's about, look how great he is. So the words that we sing are all designed, like the songs that we pick, they're, they're supposed to make much of God and not be too much about us. So, like, we don't sing songs about God's love being reckless, because it's not. 
And you can like that song. That, that, I didn't just condemn you and tell you you're not a Christian because you like that song. I'm just telling you, we're not going to sing it as a congregation because there's nothing about God that's careless. So we're very careful because you need to be able to participate with your whole heart in what's being sung. So I struggle. Like I love gratitude. But some of you are not throwing up your hands and praising him again and again. You're not. You're just saying the words, which makes you a liar. So I throw up my hands and praise him again and again. Right? But you don't. You just stand there. Let's fix that. I don't want to have to pull that song. There are some beautiful private worship songs you're absolutely free to, to richly enjoy in your car. Right? And they don't, they're not going to work uh, uh, here. Our songs are going to be rich in biblical lyrics, which make much of God. We don't sing songs that are only about us and our response to God. We choose songs as best we can in a way which are actually singable, right? So you'll notice there are songs that we do where in the recorded version, man, they take it up an octave. Well, we don't. Why not? Because I know you can't get up there. That's why not. <laughs> we want to go easy on you. We want you to be able to participate in the whole thing. And not just the down low part. So we, we limit. We think about this stuff. We're deliberate about this stuff. You will never hear me do that again. <laughs> um, singing God's word reaches us in ways and impacts us in ways I think even a sermon doesn't. We're very deliberate about the songs we will and won't do for corporate worship. So... Peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, word of Christ dwelling abundantly, and whatever you do, last verse, 18, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of, sorry, it's 17, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I could have teed this up a little better, but I wanted to surprise you, so I didn't. Gratitude. Your problem, the reason Christ's peace doesn't rule is that Christ's word doesn't dwell. The reason for that boils down to ingratitude, but let me say this a different way, <clears throat> in a way that, that you know, you're more accustomed to me saying things like this. I think our words and actions, <clears throat> I think our words and actions will generally reflect what's going on in our hearts. Right? Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you're going to notice, you're going to notice that your life is marked by one or the other. All right? <clears throat> if you look at the landscape of your life, on the one hand, Anxiety and anger. On the other hand, appreciation. Your life will be marked by one or the other. Those are really it. Kind of sums up the human condition. If you look at the landscape of your life, you will see that it's true. It's always sort of hilarious to me that the program <clears throat> that humanity has come up with to deal with addictions is called AA. Because every time I hear AA, I hear anxiety and anger. Not Alcoholics Anonymous. Because alcohol 
is one of the solutions that humanity has come up, to, come, come up with to deal with the anxiety-anger problem. We know we're broken. We know things aren't working like they're supposed to. We're, we're constantly operating in low-grade frustration. And if you're not, because your parents loved you so well, congratulations, things will go wrong eventually, and you'll be glad I said this. You operate in low-grade frustration until it turns into a panic disorder or a wrath problem. And then you go get medicated. Or we run to other band-aids to fix what we know is broken. So, all right, so here's humanity. Raging ah, and trembling. Uh, that's what we do, left to ourselves. We rage and we tremble. And then we go try self-improvement. Or we go get approval from other people. Or we do sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Or we come up with moralistic deism. And none of it works. So we're angry or anxious or both. And what God is trying to tell you to do is, why don't you come be at peace? Come be at peace instead. Don't do anger. Don't do anxiety. Come be at peace. And then the way that you do that is through his word, which is his son, who is the savior of sinners. So come know Jesus. And instead of having a life marked by anxiety or anger, what you will have is a life marked by gratitude. He says it at the end of all three of these verses. 14, 15, 16, or sorry, 15, 16, 17. Do I even pay attention? <laughs> Let peace rule. And be, those of you who are chit-chatting are going to be surprised because this sermon's going to end with a bang. And you're going to be like, oh, I wasn't done chatting. Let peace rule and be thankful. Do you see it? Let peace rule and be thankful. Let Christ's word dwell in you richly, teaching one another with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you see it? Gratitude. Whatever you do, do it giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. You're going to have to decide. Look right at me. You're going to have to decide how you want to live. That's what you're going to have to decide. Whatever you do, do it with thanksgiving to God the Father through Jesus. My hope is that Springfield Baptist Church would be a people who do what we do because we are overcome with gratitude for the salvation that we have found in the living word of God. But you cannot manufacture this. It will flow from you when you know him and not before you know him. Let's pray.